This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Monday, February the 27th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Nice to be back in the big chair. Coming up on the show today, the federal government has reached a deal to acknowledge Métis organizations as governments. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will fill you in on that story. Later in the show, columnist Shelley Petit discusses issues of accessibility at public events in New Brunswick. And Marcy Yale gives you the scoop on the 2023 Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians and Alliant Scholarship Programs. So an opportunity for students to put a little bit more jingle jangle in their pockets as the school year moves on and the bills keep going up. Speaking of money, that is your top story of the day where the show begins looking at some provincial money. Several provinces will be releasing their annual budgets this week. British Columbia is projecting a $6 billion surplus. Premier David Eby lays out some areas of spending priority. Our priorities are your priorities, and the budget will reflect them. We're building today to ensure a stronger and more secure tomorrow. We'll be building affordable housing, expanding access to health care, including mental health care and addiction treatment. Tuesday will also be Budget Day in Alberta. That government is forecasting a $12 billion surplus. That surplus is driven by higher energy prices. Economist Trevor Toome wants to see how the province handles financial promises during a boom period. It'll, it'll be interesting how detailed it is, right? It's one thing to hand wave about yeah. using it wisely. It's another to actually have concrete, formula-driven approaches to handling resource revenues. Toom is also curious how the upcoming election in the province may influence spending promises. A budget that's leading into an election is always one that contains quite a few goodies. And then you combine that with a government with significantly higher resource royalties and plan, and you have a lot of scope for uh, big announcements. Staying in the world of economics, the federal government has announced funding for a program to give workers new skills in emerging industries. The Upskilling for Industry initiative will invest $250 million to offer training to 15,000 workers. Emerging sectors include clean technology, cybersecurity, and biomanufacturing. Federal Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne says Canada is well-positioned in a change in economic landscape. I'm one of those who believe that we have everything uh, that the new economy needs and wants. Uh, it starts with people, and I think the great announcement we did today to upskill uh, uh, thousands of Canadian uh, mid-career workers, I think this is going to be good in this new uh, digital economy that we're going to have. The training will be delivered through the not-for-profit organization, Pallet Skills. And one more story from the world of economics, and this one is looking internationally. A meeting of G20 finance ministers came to an end without any consensus after the war in Ukraine took centre stage. Karen Chamis explains. The meeting hosted by India issued an outcome document that stated there was no agreement to how the war in Ukraine would be described. 
In a news conference, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz was clear on his views on the war, saying, The world is suffering as a consequence of Russia's aggression. At a session attended by Russian officials, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen condemned what she called the illegal and unjustified war against Ukraine. The group includes Russia and also countries like China and India that have significant trade with Moscow. I'm Karen Chamas. That's your look at the news. Let's have a peek at the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. Lots of chatter last week about artificial intelligence and Bing and their chatbot. And I know y'all talked about the online news act that had Google taking some ads or news news stories off their platform. So Friday, you were asked, will Bing's new artificial intelligence feature and Google's blocking of Canadian content get you to change search engines? 25% of you said yes. 50% of you said no. 25% of you said unsure. Today's Daily Poll, you heard me set this up with those stories off the top about a couple of provinces showing major, major surpluses heading into a budget week. So you're being asked at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Several provinces are showing significant budget surpluses. Where should those surpluses go? Tax cuts, paying off debt, social programs, or direct payments to residents. Now, every province has their own schemes here. It looks like British Columbia is going to be spending a lot of money into social programs. That's where they want to go. A couple of weeks ago, in an economic update, New Brunswick showed about a $1 billion surplus. Some of that money is going to an actual investment fund where the dividends from that investment will go to the population, whereas some of that money is also being reinvested into, into programs. Some provinces are definitely toying with, help with tax cuts. What you did see in Saskatchewan last year was direct payments to residents with a budget surplus. So all of these different ideas come with their pros and their cons. I just want to lay out maybe a bit more of a balanced approach. Certainly, anytime you hear this conversation, an all-of-the-above approach could be the way to go. But sometimes you need to consider short-term gains as an opportunity for longer, more systemic change. So things like paying off debt, I know it doesn't sound sexy, I know it doesn't sound glamorous, but let's just use that number of $6 billion at, let's call it 2% interest rate on any given debt, structural debt that exists. That is $120 million a year. If you take that $6 billion right now and say, boom, we've wiped out this debt, that could open up $120 million that you're not spending on interest payments, servicing the debt next year. And where can that money go? Either paying off more debt or being reinvested into those social programs. So over the course of time, paying off debt when you have the opportunity from a structural point of view as a government is a really, really good idea. Maybe you don't use the entirety of that money to pay off the debt. You sprinkle a little bit into social programs. You sprinkle a little bit into direct payments to residents. But when you pay off debt, you change the economic landscape of your province, and that can make a big, big difference in the future. So that's where I would vote. If you made me vote on one, I would vote for paying off debt. Alex Smythe, if I put your feet to the fire, what would you do? Yeah, Dave, you make some compelling points about paying off debt. I, I think, though, I would probably lean towards social programs, especially given where we have been the last three years or so. You saw so many 
uh, important programs cut or paused or halted, and there's been a real impact because of it. I think having more investments into those social programs, like you mentioned BC is doing, I think you can really address some some key issues uh, within society, giving opportunity for people and, and giving people supports that they may not have had over the last few years. I agree that paying off the debt is important, and, and especially when you have, you're just basically making interest payments on debts and not actually addressing debt, that becomes a long-term issue. The problem is there's no guarantee because we are talking politics and there's a rotating door of parties, each one have a different philosophy. So let's say you take all the money and you pay off the debt now. There's nothing stopping the, uh, the next uh, party that comes in or the next election cycle that happens to start really spending that money on the debt again and, and, and building up the debt so you're basically back to where you were in square one. I'm not saying that's an argument against paying off debt. No, you should definitely do it. But I, I think for me, if I had to choose one of these options, I would definitely go with the social programs because I think overall it can have a greater impact on the population you're trying to serve. So, so it, it's, it's always weird to talk about the economic context that we're in because it's weird to call it an economic boom when you see that like poverty rates are going up, when savings rates are going down and cost of living is so high. But there has been an economic boom going on. I'm one of the people who thinks that the notion of a full-blown recession is a little bit of a... Um, uh, let's call it a media mirage right now. It's a conversation that economists want people to be having because it stokes a certain level of fear in the way that they're going to handle their finances. Whether there's going to be a bit of an economic pullback or not, I believe is inevitable just based on where we're at. But when people are talking about these full-blown recessions, that's an issue. But let's go under the current economic context, which is it has been a boom cycle for provincial finances based on tax collection, energy prices, take your pick. The one issue I would have with reinvesting too much in social programs is now whatever surplus you have, you're going to be diminishing. There's a diminishing return there. So although the healthcare system, disability supports, supports for seniors, building housing, climate policy, all of these areas would be good investments. My only concern is if we are indeed moving towards an economic pullback where this very short boom period is coming to an end, you want to be really careful about acquiring too much debt and something like social programs are something that is going to increase your deficit every year. It's going to nibble away at those surpluses. So the one concern is that as you start moving into a potential economic context that's different, okay, well, now we've added more structural spending to our budget. We're now taking on more debt to pay for that structural spending, and interest rates are going to be higher because of the central bank. So it's just one of these moments. It's an inflection point where there might be some pain here to not reinvest completely in social programs, but you have to be very mindful of creating more structural deficits, especially in an era of raising interest rates. I, I, I know that it sounds like I'm getting really deep into the economic weeds here, Alex, but, but, that's, but that's kind of where I'm landing at right now. When provincial governments have the opportunity, they should absolutely be focusing on paying off debt during boom periods because there's no guarantee when you're going to go through the next bust period. Yeah, no, that's, uh, again, that's, those are all great points, Dave. You, you clearly 
this is something you, you, you've sat with for quite a bit. This is something you, you've, you've thought about and the importance of it, and I agree. I, I think we can both kind of agree on, especially in the context of this poll, though. It's like giving money back to, to the residents and giving uh, tax breaks is probably on the lower end of what we would do with this money. It's like we, we both see the value in investing, but we also, I, I agree there is the importance in managing the debt that we have and paying it off. Because the, that's the old adage that it's like, okay, well, it's important to save money when you're you're making the money, when you're in those boom periods, so you can handle when you go into those bus periods, yeah. as you described it. Yeah, it, really and truly, if I was the premier of Alberta, if I was Danielle Smith, if I was Premier Dave Brown, and I was looking at a $12 billion uh, forecast uh, surplus, I would be doing, I would be literally splitting it in three. I'd be paying $4 billion off in debt. I'd be investing $4 billion in social programs. And then I'd be giving the taxpayers back $4 billion. Like that's, that would be my technique to say, okay, well, one-time check, that's not structural debt that I'm adding. It's actually giving money back to people in an era of high inflation, which they would like. And especially in an election year, they would be, I think, uh, particularly delighted by that. But I would still be knocking off some debt and reinvesting in things like healthcare and affordable housing and public transit, right, right, take your pick, right? Social programs is a big, broad thing that certainly deserves uh, more attention in this conversation. But I, I think there's a real balanced approach you could take here. But again, my singular vote, paying off debt. Alex, don't go too far because you're going to be back in a moment to read the national weather forecast. But I do want to remind you that you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can send your broader thoughts in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You know what you can do if you send that email as well? You could also send a selfie video. You don't need to leave it just in your words. You can show your pretty face on national television or you can just leave your pretty voice in a voicemail. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. I'm going to give it to you a third time. 1-866-509-4545 or feedback at ami.ca. What would you do with provincial government economic budget surpluses. Where should those go? Tax cuts, paying off debt, social programs, or payments to residents. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. Starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's a mix of sun and clouds today with a chance of snow. The highest minus 11, with a wind chill of minus 23. In Halifax, Nova Scotia today, it is mainly sunny and the high is minus six, feeling like minus 24. To Montreal, Quebec, it is mainly sunny and there are clouds rolling in later. The high is gonna be minus six, but feeling like minus 18 with that wind chill. In Ottawa, Ontario, it is sunny as well. The high is minus six, but it's feeling like minus 20. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with snow beginning late afternoon. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus one and feeling like minus 12. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with snow beginning this afternoon. Up to four centimeters is expected to fall and there's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour in the area. The high is minus two with a wind chill of minus 18. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's a mix of sun and clouds this morning and then there is also the possibility of either falling snow or freezing rain. The high is one degree, but feels like minus 14 with that wind chill. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, there's snow today, 
and it will be ending in the afternoon, but there is up to two centimeters expected to fall. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus eight, and the wind chill is minus 25. In Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with snow expected in the morning. The high is minus two, and it's minus 22 with that wind chill. Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow as well. The high is minus 5, and again, it's feeling like minus 22 with that wind chill. Up to Yellowknife Northwest Territories. It is cloudy with a chance of snow this morning, and then it will become sunny in the afternoon. The high is minus 17 and feeling like minus 34 with that wind chill. Over to Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with snow or rain in the afternoon and there is uh, expected to be up to two centimeters of snow falling and the high will be three degrees for Vancouver. Finally, in Victoria, it is cloudy with the snow or rain in the afternoon. And the high is going to be four degrees today. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, the federal government is reaching a deal to acknowledge Métis organizations as governments. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will fill you in on the story. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The federal government has reached agreements with several organizations to recognize them as Métis governments. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig has more on this story. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, let's start with the who. Who are the organizations that are being acknowledged? So there are three groups. It's the uh, Métis Nation of Ontario, the Métis Nation of Alberta, and Métis Nation of Saskatchewan are the three who have now signed these deals as of Friday. I know this may get a little bit into the weeds, but let's give this a crack. How will this impact how the federal government and these organizations interact? Sure. Bear in mind, this is this is at best a Coles Notes version. Yes, <laughs> but, yes, uh... absolutely. This could get pretty granular pretty quickly if we absolutely, went into all of yeah. it. Absolutely, yeah. So lots of nitty-gritty. I'm sure there's, and of course, people are quite open about the fact that they're still reviewing this deal to fully understand its implications. But essentially, this is something that the Métis organizations have been seeking for quite a long time. There was an accord signed in 2019 that acknowledged the Métis right to self-governance, but didn't actually go... A, that extra step in naming who would comprise those governments and what that would mean. So that's what this deal does for those three groups. So what it means is now these organizations have been appointed governments. They're, they're, they they now have those kinds of powers. They can determine their own leadership. They can determine who qualifies as a Métis citizen. Uh, it puts them in line for some greater federal protections, and it gives them more control over things like child welfare and other matters mm. that really affect the nation. So. Uh, Michelle, I think I think it's 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 implied a little bit in the answer you just gave, and you said people are 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 studying what the bigger implications may be. But what what is maybe the bigger context or the bigger significance behind this deal? Yeah, it's uh, the Métis Nation has been seeking this for quite a long time. Uh, the fact that in 2019 only is when they even got acknowledgement that they had the inherent right to self-government, but even then it didn't go and spell things out. Um, they're really taking this as a major victory. There's something that the, they, they say this is something they've been seeking for about 90 years, that right to have sort of equal constitutional footing with other First Nations, to have more control over their own affairs, and to have some of that government protection. Um, this is, it's been a long 
a long fight and, and yeah. there's some interesting stories coming out of how that's all spelled out but um this is really the, the broader picture is that it's trying to give the metis nation not only greater autonomy but put them on a more equal footing with other indigenous groups yeah the, you heard the expression nation to nation negotiation or nation to nation building being used quite a bit in, in terms of like federal relations with indigenous relations and how those intersect but the fact is you really can't do that kind of nation to nation negotiation or interacting unless you actually have an organization or a government that you can nation to nation build with so to me it just fits into that that bigger piece of the puzzle that you've been hearing especially over the last four or five years in regards to the expression of nation-to-nation building, self-determination, self-interest, self-governance, etc. Yeah, fantastic point and very true. Um, and there's there's more negotiating to go, especially now that they have these powers, we'll see what, what actually happens with them. And it's worth noting, too, that the federal government is still negotiating similar kinds of deals to the ones that were just signed on Friday with other Métis organizations for different provinces. So yeah. BC and Northwest Territories, Manitoba already has one in the books. Uh, so that would cover the, the bulk of them, but that's... Uh, this is still a very active file for the yeah, government absolutely. On, all, on all fronts. Michelle, let, let's switch to a story that certainly has some federal implications, but it's provincially based. It's it's a story out of Quebec. This, there's a disproportionate representation of Inuit people in the Quebec prison system. What do those numbers look like? Yeah, disproportionate is one word for it. Understatement. Um, I, uh, dis- yeah, disproportionate it, is an understatement. Absolutely. I, I'd like to just tip my hat to my colleague, Jacob Sarabrin, who did some really good work parsing these numbers and getting these figures and, and dealing with a lot of government runaround on this story. Um, Inuit in Quebec are incarcerated at 15 times the rate of non-Inuit inmates in that province. 15 times. Uh, it, it's a huge number. It's twice as much as any other Indigenous group to say nothing of the non-Indigenous part of the population. And it all gets chalked up. These these are wild numbers. Like I don't have them right in front of me, but they're 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 just off the charts in terms of how many are, are spending time in provincial custody, and the kind of conditions that they're facing in provincial custody. Because then you get into the resourcing issue, which is the one mm-hmm. at the heart of all this. That people are saying that the programs that are meant to sort of deter people away from the justice system and 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 provide alternatives to criminal lifestyles and in support programs for trauma. Uh, sexual sexual wellness and sexual awareness services, all of these kinds of things are not as readily available in the North, which is where the bulk of Quebec's mm-hmm. Inuit population lives. And the other factor here, too, is that when Inuit people are arrested in the North, there's no real jail facility up there. So why, a lot of them wind up being sent away more than a thousand kilometers from their homes to serve those sentences. So not only are they wildly overrepresented in the system itself, but they're not... Uh, enduring similar kinds of conditions to other inmates once they're there. Which is similar to a story that we shared out of British Columbia a couple of weeks ago about a disproportionate poor treatment in terms of access to services while in the prison system for people who are Indigenous. So it really speaks to a couple of issues that are all coinciding and coalescing in one place. Michelle, you mentioned that there was some runaround from the government here. What does the government have to say about this? What reaction did the government have to some of these numbers as they came out? If you read the, Jacob's story is great in that it it focuses all on all the issues. It's got a great human voice throughout. And then the last three sentences are documenting the runaround that he got from government officials as he was trying to get some response from them. Uh, he reached out to several ministries, all of whom who passed the buck. 
Finally, the one who was supposed to be over, overseeing this declined to speak to us for this. Mm. So the government has not really provided a response in light of these numbers. So as you point out... And we are talking about provincial custody. It's worth yes. noting that in this case, we're not dealing with the federal government as much. This is all within Quebec. Yes. Again, worth noting that the RCMP has no jurisdiction anywhere inside Quebec, even even on uh, even on yeah, Indigenous exactly. lands. It's, it's either the SQ or local police forces. So yeah, exactly it's, right. it's, it's, it's so it's absolutely mm. a Quebec. It's a Quebec issue, although although a broader issue in our justice system. This is a, sure. this is a Quebec it's particularly story. emblematic. Yes, but I'm glad you mentioned the local police. If I may, I just want to jump please, in with another please. another fun fact from Jacob's story um, in Nunavik, which is the northern region of. Quebec, where the bulk of the Inuit population reside, uh, one of one of many issues at play is lack of representation on the police force. Uh, I think we had something like of 88 officers, I think only four were Inuit on that force. Mm-hmm. Which again speaks to a lot of the community policing conversations that we're having in police reform as well. Absolutely. Uh, Michelle, yeah. you, you mentioned one last question here. You mentioned in the story there was a lot of voices that were represented. What is the broad reaction from community members? Not surprised. Uh, a lot of people who watch these issues more closely seem to know this already. Uh, so what might be news to, to you and me and, and certainly a lot of audience members, I suspect, are not that shocking to people who have been closely involved in studying these issues or dealing directly with them in the, in the legal system. Mm. So uh, um, you know, kudos to Jacob for educating us further afield beyond yeah, de- those who are already plugged into the system. Definitely another piece of the reconciliation conversation that needs to be had in the modern context, not just simply sure. in the historical context. Michelle, thank you for an update on both these stories. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great week. That is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Marcy Yale will give you the scoop on the 2023 Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians and Alliance Scholarship Program. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. Steady heading into the weekend with a slight upward momentum despite some up and down performances in various sectors. Toronto's S&P TSX gained 31 points, closing at 20,219. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 337 points down to 32,817, while the Nasdaq fell 195 points to 11,395. Meanwhile, the major Asian markets started the new week in the red, with Japan's Nikkei finishing down 30 points at 27,424. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng closed down 67 points at 19,944. A majority of American business economists are expecting a U.S. recession to begin later this year than they had previously forecast. That's according to a survey by the National Association for Business Economics. And finally, the loony is trading this morning at 73.54 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. For college and university students, this is the home stretch. Maybe you're lucky enough that this week is reading week, but generally you're back in the mix and you are embracing the grind. That means exams, exams, papers, exams, 
and more exams. It also means that you need to get your applications in for deadlines on scholarships and bursaries, and that includes the Alliance for Equality for Blind Canadians and Alliance Scholarship for Students with Disabilities. Here to break down some of those details is Marcy Yale. Marcy is the National President of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Hey, good morning, Marcy. Great to chat with you once again. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, but as you know, I always enjoy talking about education with you, and I always appreciate highlighting scholarships that are available for students with disabilities. So before we jump into individual scholarships and who they're going to be honoring and what they're looking for, why is the AEBC so interested in pursuing scholarships and bursary programs for students with disabilities? Well, people who are blind, deafblind, and partially sighted are among the the least employed, and education is hopefully a way to uh, equalize the playing field and get more of us employed. And if you don't have a good education these days, um, that that sort of puts you behind the eight ball. Uh, so we want we want to encourage blind, deafblind, and partially sighted students to go on and to get post-secondary education and you know, make, make lives for themselves. I knew you would have a great answer for that, and I couldn't agree with you more, Marcy. I'm so lucky that my family, uh, maybe sometimes even to my annoyance, uh, really made me pursue education in my young adult life, and it's framed me to be the person that I am today, and I'm super, super, super lucky. And certainly there's some great opportunities for students here to offset some of the expenses they may encounter here. So let's talk about some of these individual awards. Why don't we start with the Paul and Mary Ellen Gabbius scholarship paying uh, homage to them what makes this scholarship so significant and makes their contribution so significant well if it weren't for paul and mary ellen aebc probably wouldn't exist because they founded the national federation of the blind advocates for equality back in 1992 mm. and although um there was a schism and the organization split into two uh there was an organization to split so they started it they had very specific goals in mind and a very specific um, framework to follow and that was of the national federation of the blind in the states um you know consumer control consumer um, advocacy and we've kept that up, uh, even though, like I said, even though there was a split, um, we are still an advocacy organization. We are mm -hmm. consumer controlled. We are all volunteers. Um, we hope that's going to change soon. But right now we are all volunteers. Yeah. Uh, there's also a, a scholarship named after Irene Lambert. What were Irene's contributions? She has done a lot of work in the low low vision and blind community in Montreal. Uh, she also was part of the push to have the CRTC up the audio description levels mm -hmm. for broadcasters. So, I mean, she's you know she's done her a lot of work in her time with us. And she's been a long time member. So we figured that we should honor her. Um, as, you know, is her due, I think. And what are the values of these two scholarships? So those two are $2,500 each. 
Uh, and if you like, I can run down the rest of them. Well, why don't why don't we go piece by piece instead of just listing okay, them off? Sure. So I think I think it's a little bit easier sure. that way, a little more digestible. And then what we'll do on the back end after we run once we run down these different scholarships, then we'll sort of get into what people have to do to apply for them because that's because okay. kind of, that's kind of an important question too. And uh, no kidding. But, but but this is a perfect representation with me keeping the application details to the end of the procrastination that I oftentimes had in applying for scholarships. <laughs> uh, so the next uh, one, the, yeah. the, the next one to offer a bit of a highlight to is the John Ray Scholarship. So why was it important to remember John Ray's contributions? Well, John was the consummate advocate um, and he was always willing to pass on um, how to advocate to other people and to encourage people to find their passion and advocate for it. Um, his passions, some of them were museums and um and audio description and huh, basically human rights, mm -hmm. anything to do with human rights. And so he was also a longtime member of AEBC and a member of the Toronto chapter, but he also uh, did a lot of work with the gang in BC, with our members out in BC. And that's why it's the BC affiliate and the Toronto chapter that are joining National in providing the $1,500 scholarship in memory of John. And um, it hasn't been a year yet. I still miss him. Mm. I think I'll miss him for, <laughs> well, forever. Uh, he was he was one of those larger-than-life people, uh, nicknamed the Penguin, for mm. anyone who uh, <laughs> remembers John. And, and for some reason, he was very proud of that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> hey, you, we we all have we all have our, our nicknames that uh, that, okay. that people enjoy, and yeah, and certainly uh, someone who who is missed uh, for sure amidst yeah. the community. Um, looking at some of the looking at the case of the John Ray Scholarship, there's sort of a particular kind of student that's being looked for. What are the qualifications? Well, we would like to find someone who is going to be studying in the fine arts or in human rights and advocacy. Um, but if we can't, uh, we may choose to hold it off till next year. We want to find the right student to honor John, uh, someone that he could have been proud of and that he would have wanted to mentor. So we'll see what happens. Um, you never know what kind of applications you're going to receive. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of actually the, the coolest things about these kinds of scholarship programs because you get to meet and hear the stories of students all across the country who maybe weren't on the radar. Maybe they don't have an affiliation with AEBC, uh, like like en passant or, or a casual relationship, but all of a sudden you hear about these wonderful members of the community yeah. who, who have these passions and have these stories and want to pursue these dreams and pursue these goals exactly and and you never know how many of those people are going to be heard from years to come yeah I mean, we have we have scholarship recipients that are in the community that we know of that uh you know, are still making a difference and that's that's what we hope for yeah absolutely is that our scholarships will help someone make a difference marcy you mentioned the british columbia gang because certainly there's a great aebc influence out there in bc there is a bc, a BC columbia or a british columbia affiliate scholarship that honors dr paul thiel so what role has dr thiel played over over the years in advocacy within the province 
Well, um, Paul, if anyone has ever heard of the Crane Library, Paul was part of the group that helped start that little um, ambition um, initiative. Uh, the Crane Library has been around since 1968, I believe, and Paul played a, a key role in it um, for a long time at UBC. Uh, the Crane Library does alternate format production for the students at, at UBC, as well as for students in the in the, the more broader educational system. Paul also, basically, he's, he helped to start the scholarships with AEBC. And back when I was national secretary in the years from 2002 to 2008, he was always on the scholarship committee. And he basically led it. Mm. Uh, so I learned, I learned a lot from him. Oh, absolutely. So I'm really happy that, that we are honoring him this year. And one more scholarship to talk about in terms of the broad details before we get into the specifics of where people should go to apply and what they have to get ready for these applications. But the Alliance Scholarship, what what's the significance of that particular partnership? So um, Alliant, formerly T-Base Communications, so for those of you who have never heard of Alliant, uh, T-Base Communications um, is now part of a three-tiered uh, organization, uh, which took the name Alliant. And they have been part of our scholarship program since around 2012, 2013. Mm. Uh, so it's been a while. Uh, and this year, what we've decided is that we are giving one Alliant scholarship in the amount of $2,000. And there are no specific criteria and attached to it. Uh, so it, it's just the regular criteria for the program. So we it doesn't matter what what uh, area of study the student is pursuing. So Marcy, that that's the what. We've run down these five different scholarships. How are students uh, advised to approach the applications here? What are the things they need to know before they start putting together an application package? Well, first of all, they have to meet our criteria. So they they have to be blind, deaf, blind, or partially sighted, and we spell that out for them uh, as part of the documentation. They have to be Canadian citizens or permanent residents. So unfortunately, we, we aren't able to give foreign students any of our scholarships. Um, they have to be enrolled in a post-secondary institution in Canada, or they can be studying abroad if there's a better program or if they couldn't get into a program here. Uh, they have to be taking at least two courses for mm -hmm, the year. Mm -hmm. So they have to be at least part-time students. They can't be just taking you know, one course for the entire year. And if they, if they, fit all of that, um, then they need to fill out the application form, which is part of the documentation that they can download. Uh, we need a copy of their transcript, and that can be un unofficial or official, as, le you know, as, as good a copy as we can get to find out you know, how they're doing, uh, and even in high school. So we want to know what their academic performance is. 
And the main part of the application is a personal essay. Mm. And they need to tell us about themselves. So they have to tell us, you know, what's their visual con- their visual condition and what challenges have been caused as a result of it and how they've overcome them. Uh, what their personal interests are, their academic goals, uh, school activities, work or volunteer experience, uh, and the views on ex- the meaning of accessible education. So, how does you know how does getting your education in the format you needed, getting your material in the format you needed, how does that help mm. um, you know towards doing what you want to do? Um, and base, and then they have to explain the importance of community involvement. So what have they done in the community and how has that changed them? What have they, you know, what have they done that have made, that has made them really proud of the work that they're doing in the community? And basically <laughs> if they don't tell us, you know, we, we can only learn from what they tell us. Mm. Um, we can't guess. Uh, right so they need to be specific and they need to be clear and you know and and basically tell us about themselves and then we need a letter of reference um that was written in the last 12 months so a current letter of reference Mm -hmm. okay like these these are reasonable requirements not too onerous so that that said the countdown clock is on on this march 31st 11 59 p.m Pacific time for those applications, March 31st. So just about a month to prepare. So there is still time to do this, even if you're a procrastinator like me. Marcy, where should people go? Where should students go to learn more? Or you know what's going to happen. There's going to be for sure a grandma or a mom who's watching this this morning because the student is sleeping in or hopefully in class. Uh, where should where should a student go to uh, learn more about the scholarships? Okay, they can go to blindcanadians.ca slash programs slash scholarship. And if they missed that and would rather just write down an email address and email me and I can send them the link, uh, the email is scholarship at blindcanadians.ca. And um, honestly, you know, you mentioned procrastination and I must tell you that the bulk of our applications are always received Ooh, the day before <laughs> the day of the final day, you know, like that, that's so typical. So it's funny that you should mention procrastination. Every, every post-secondary yeah. student loves to pull an all-nighter here and then Marcy. It's it's all part of the thrill. It's all part of the thrill working at the it last is. minute. Blindcanadians.ca or scholarship at blindcanadians.ca. Marcy, such a pleasure chatting with you again. Thank you to, for you and all the work that you and your colleagues are doing advocating for the community it's amazing work well thank you for helping us publicize it we really want our students to find out about us yeah absolutely get those applications in and again maybe you're uh, maybe you're a parent or a grandma or a friend and you're listening this morning watching this morning let people know about this let people know about this opportunity blindcanadians.ca that's marcy yale the national president of the alliance for the equality of blind Canadians. Hey, speaking of stuff that you should have on your radar, there's a really cool event coming to Calgary on March 17th. And no, it's not just your average St. Patrick's Day party. No, 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 no. 
It's a cool live taping of an AMI show. So if you live in the Calgary area and you're interested in being part of a television studio audience, AMI's by hook or by cook is going to be filming two episodes in Calgary on Friday, March the 17th. And you're invited to participate, to be part of the audience and get to hang out a little bit and watch the show. You get a picture on the red carpet. There's some refreshments, a meet and greet with Bruce Cook and other cast members and a uh, meet and greet with me. I'm going to be hosting these shows. Plus a gift bag valued at $75. I'm going to be hosting these two episodes. So I'm going to be in Calgary on Friday, March the 17th. For more information and to reserve your spot, email info at ami.ca. Info at ami.ca. Again, those live tapings are in Calgary on March the 17th of By Hook or By Cook. Info at ami.ca. Coming up next, Kim Thistle reviews the Netflix documentary, Pamela, a love story. But first, the CEO of Pinterest is considering how social media companies will expand the use of artificial intelligence. Mike Dubusky will tell you more in Tech Trends. Brian Reddy is the CEO of Pinterest. He says the launch of artificial intelligence programs like Bing AI and ChatGPT raises important questions for his industry. As there's a new, more powerful generation of AI coming into the view of the consumer, it's really important that we have a discussion about what that AI is being asked to do. He says social media companies have been using AI to get users to stay on their platforms. In which case it may continue serving things that are more divisive, more salacious, uh, just for the sake of getting you engaged. Instead, Reddy argues platforms can and should be tracking how a user feels on their platform. Asking it to show things that are going to make people feel good and then measuring for those outcomes. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There is a new documentary on Netflix about Pamela Anderson. It's all in conjunction with a memoir about her career and life story. The film is called Pamela, A Love Story, and Kim Thistle is here with a review. Hey, good morning, Kim. Good morning. How's it going? Pretty good. Kim, I have to confess, this one came across my Netflix feed and I wasn't necessarily ready to press, press play. Why did you press play on this one? Well, I guess the reason I pressed play is because I was asked to do it. Oh, <laughs> a Paul Daniels special. If we get to the real, realistic, it was my job for this month. However, having said that, it's, you're right. It was not something I would have said, oh, yeah, I need to press this. I want to watch this. I want to know more because I was thinking, you know, what is there? I'm glad I did because the documentary is authentic, it's raw, it's real. She she opens up her, her journals. She kept journals all her adult life, I think, as a kid even, too. The VHS tech tapes of their family tapes. Um, she just allowed access to everything. In BC, like she she's living in BC now, Ladysmith, BC, a little tiny community where she grew up um, in her grandmother's home. And she she shows up on camera. No makeup, hair not done. She goes to the store and buys her um, a bottle of um, hair dye. You know, and like she, she shows herself as a real person. And, and I thought it was refreshing because I, I went into it thinking like, you know, why would I want to watch this? You know, why would we want to know any more or anything, right? Yeah. Like there's more to her than, you know, 
she's three-dimensional as it is, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. More to her. It's, 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 it's such a, it's, it's so emblematic of so many celebrities or stars, right? Yeah. People might think of Pamela Anderson as a sex symbol, yeah. as a star on Baywatch, maybe as a Tommy Lee's wife. So what, were, what was your impression of Pamela Anderson before you even hit play? Well, that's a good point, because like you said, I really didn't know. I think the proud part was, well, she's Canadian, but then again, she was this huge humongous sex symbol, and it was more like she's giving this image that this is how the perfect woman is supposed to look like, and, you know, and, and that's not true. And then you had, you'd hear about the infamous sex tapes, and she was married to Tommy Lee. So I said, I really didn't, that was it. Like, you know, Baywatch and and home improvement and that show is not mentioned in this and and you know barbed wire her movie she did so that was really the extent of it you know you see pictures of the, you know the, um that you go to the grocery store and there'd be headlines for last on the magazine or something but that was about it you know yeah, really yeah uh, so so for me, Kim, I, I had a bit of a, a realization of of maybe the humor that, that lived deep within Pamela Anderson when she agreed to be part of the first Borat movie, where where although that although that was that was shown as as, um, as something that happened for real, obviously it didn't happen for real. It was staged. Right. It was fake, but it was so funny and it was so clever. And I thought to myself, Oh, Pamela Anderson knows how to laugh at herself. knows how to he, knows how to understand where she sits in the cultural zeitgeist. You got it. So, you got it. so how did your impression change of Pamela Anderson after you took in the documentary? After, well, you know what? I said this was this is a woman like she's more than just her boobs, right? And she, you know, she describes herself as you know my boob. What was it? And my boobs had a career, and I just tagged along, right? <laughs> and but she knows that she. But she's showing us that she's more than that. Like, I mean, she's a devoted mother. She's an activist. Um, she's a producer. I had read somewhere in, in this. And, and like, she, I did not know, and I will tell you, because I didn't know, I didn't know that she had horrific abuse in her life. And I don't know if anybody, you know, that's probably, well, that's obviously coming out in the memoir. But the abuse that she had growing up, and then later with Tommy Lee and, and other situations, like, I mean, this is a woman who's resilient. This is a woman who's tough. This is a woman who's a true romantic, like just loves the, the idea of being in love and getting married and still looking for that right person yeah. and still putting herself out there after so many hurts and struggles. And she's not blaming anybody because she says to herself, she said, you know, I, I, I wouldn't change my experiences. And that's what I, I thought, you know, there's more to you. Yeah, you're, 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 um, you have more dimension than just being, you know, the poster girl for, yeah. you know, the hot woman in the world type of thing. Well, Kim, as you mentioned, there, there is some trauma and tragedy yes. and sadness there, whether it be the abuse, yes. whether it be some of the public humiliations, oh. whether it be just sort of the general male gaze, the scope that's applied to so many, so many female yes. sex symbols. Yes. It, it would lead me to believe the documentary could be a little bit sad, a bit of a bummer. How would you describe it? And you know that's because uh, that's what I struggled with that word like a saying sad and a bummer. But it's in a sense it was like, wow, like you went through all this, and but she's not there screeching and bawling, and I was wronged, and this type of thing. I can't find another word to say sad and a bummer. But she's opening it up, and she's being raw, and she's being authentic, and saying this is who I am. This is how I came to where I am. I, you know, I, I had a brand. I didn't do a good job branding myself financially. She, she'll tell you that. Mm. But it's just, she's, oh God, you know, it was well done. It was done. Her, her son is Brandon Lee is a producer, and Ryan White is a, a producer as well. So 
I, I don't think you'll come out of it feeling, oh, you know, sad, 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 and, uh, you know, I can't go on now the rest of the day because it's like she's she's tough and she's resilient. Yeah. It's a reflective type of movie. I think yeah. that's the way I took it because, I mean, I, I let them, I watched the movie and I said, okay, that's interesting. And then I think about it for the past little while and then I bring it up with my friends, that, you know, I was with different, three different groups yesterday and I said I had watched this movie about Pamela Anderson and everybody had a different thing to say. So it sparked so much conversation among ourselves yeah, about yeah. her and who we thought she was and what she was. Kim, I, I like that you mentioned sort of the authenticity and the raw there, because that's something we're seeing more in what I'll call the new documentary space. Like to call this a documentary, I think I think is like a little bit, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit far because it's not necessarily an objective look. It's a first person viewpoint. But I, but I like that format. You're seeing it pop up more and more where actors or celebrities or athletes or whomever is really telling their story through a, a first person eyes, really through yeah. their own experience and giving that to you as a viewer or a listener. And Kim, I have to confess, even though it's not necessarily journalistically objective, I like right. it. Yes, and it is because, the, like, for even with her, the, she 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 stayed, saved everything, her journals and her VHS tapes. And for this documentary, she's just taking these tapes out and, and watching them again yeah. for the first time. So we're actually seeing her emotions as she's watching the things that had happened. Right, you know that might be a happy moment or a not so happy moment, and or you know that that type of thing, and, and it was really neat. And it's something. And in one scene, she has to get up and leave to compose herself, and then there's another scene where the, it, like we see it, and I yeah I agree with you. I do like that first person perspective. How and she didn't interfere from what I had read. Like she she even said herself, I just gave them all this information. Do what you want. Edit it as you want. I'm not telling you what you can and cannot yeah, put in here. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. Uh, Kim, you mentioned there's a blend of archival footage here along with yes. first-person footage. How was the audio audio description keeping you up to date on what exactly was being shown on screen? No, it wasn't. I thought it was very poor. And I guess, it's, and then I, then I said, okay, how can I really criticize it? But at the same time, like she's talking and all this stuff and all these different pictures, images are being flashed on the screen. And I guess you can't, say what the pictures are because obviously she's still talking, right? We can't talk over her. And then there was another part of the movie that, you know, there's a long wall and then all of a sudden the voice comes over and says, and the picture of Pamela and the red carpet. And I'm like, jeepers, we had all, you know, there was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, where'd you yeah. come from? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kim, I can tell you liked the movie though. So what's the final score you would give it out of 10? You know what, when I wrote it, I wrote my notes last night and I said, okay, I'm going to say 6.5 out of 7. And then I said, you know what? I think it's more of an 8 and 8.5. Wow, wow. Because I'm still talking about it and I'm still thinking about it. And I had such great conversation with my friends and everybody, you know. Really, and, and I said, you know what? She, I, I admired a woman. She had been through abuse, but she knew where, I don't want to say, how do I say it? Her children were first. And she walked away from a marriage because she said, like, I think Tommy is her main love. And she had to walk away with that for her children. Yeah, powerful. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, Kim, you're absolutely right. Sometimes you watch something and in the moment you're like, yeah, that was meh, that was this, that, that was other. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you find yourself having a pint with a friend and you just start talking about it. And you're like, okay, that movie was really good. <laughs> or, at least that, or, at least that, or, or at least that or at least that movie was very thoughtful. 
thoughtful. That's a great way to put it because it made me reflect and, you know, wonder about different things and, you know, and that we didn't know about and maybe we want to know about. Yeah. And you know what? She was on Broadway last year. Like she put herself out there on Broadway, mm-hmm. like singing and dancing and doing all that training. And I'm thinking, and I, and you know, one of the lines she says in the movie, I don't care what people think of me or what they're doing, you know, like I'm wrestling. This is, this is me. And I said, yeah, hats off to you. <laughs> good for you. Hey, Kim, good for you. you. Take care. That Bye. is film reviewer Kim Thistle in St. John's, Newfoundland, with a review of Pamela, A Love Story, which you can find on Netflix. After the break, you can find me giving you the regional news update and Brock Richardson stopping by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.